0: Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by community-powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Giovanna Sardelli, who is the director of Archduke by Rajiv Joseph, which is playing at TheatreWorks Mountain View Center for the Arts through June 30th. Giovanna Sardelli is TheatreWorks director of New Works, directed and developed plays all over the country, an MFA in acting from NYU, graduate of the Director's Lab. You said you were born and raised in Las Vegas and came to New York to NYU, which means that there was a lot of theater, though not quite New York theater, in Vegas as you were growing up.
1: My father is a Las Vegas entertainer. So when I was growing up, he had a show with the Mills Brothers at the Flamingo Hilton Hotel. So I grew up going to shows like that, seeing um, Cher, Donny Osmond. (laughs) Um, So... I was trying to think of all the biggies back then, but no theater. I had actually never really seen a play because even when we would travel to New York, we'd see musicals. And so when I was at UNLV and I was about to graduate, I realized the only play, professional play I had ever seen was one play when the acting company toured to UNLV. I think they did El Rio Grande de Coca-Cola and As You Like It. So two plays. And then when I was about to graduate, I realized, oh, if I'm going to be an actress, I should see theater. So my parents sent me to London for three weeks. I saw 21 plays and I realized, oh, I have to learn how to do this. And that's what made me go to NYU.
0: What's your dad's name?
1: Nelson Sardelli. He is from Brazil. He's full Italian blood from Brazil, came to this country, became a singer He's also a renowned gun twirler. So when I was growing up, he and Sammy Davis Jr. were the two gun twirlers of Las Vegas. <laughs> so,
0: so you grew up around Sammy Davis Jr. What was that like?
1: Well, it's funny. I didn't know Sammy Davis Jr., but my father, um, of course, being in that circle, we would see his show or we'd watch whenever he was on television. There were local cable stations, I guess, then. Forest Duke so funny. He would interview all the Las Vegas entertainers, so we would watch that. I was so young, but I knew that Sammy Davis Jr. twirled guns because he and my father collected guns and had the same—he was a jeweler, I think, but he would take a gun and then gold-plated or silver-plated and do amazing designs, and so often we would see the gun Sammy was going to get when we were picking up my dad's gun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You went off to New York. You went to NYU. And of course, New York is where the soaps were. So how'd you get the gig for the soap opera? And when you say it was kind of a minor role, what does that mean?
1: I had graduated from NYU in the grad acting program. I had an agent and I'm submitted for a bunch of stuff. And one of the jobs I got was to play a nurse on the soap opera, Another World. And because I could handle the medical dialogue, none of which I remember now, and because I was great at faking things like a surgery, they just kept hiring me. It was hilarious. We had no medical training. The very first episode I did, I had to do a surgery, and I just kept clipping things and <laughs> wiping the doctor's brow, and at the end of the soap when they called cut. The doctor walked away. The actor walked away, and I had clipped his entire costume to the patient. <laughs> but none of that was on camera, and so they kept hiring me. The contract is under five or less, so that means you're hired to say five lines. But I became a master of the comma, so I could make my lines longer.
0: <laughs> like what? What was what was uh, an example of one of those lines that you extended out?
1: I would have to say things like. Um, Doctor, your wife called, but before you take that call, you should probably check on the patient in room 272. So that would become one line (laughs) (laughs) by adding the but. (laughs) And then that way, if I did an improvisation of one line, they could keep it.
0: Did you actually have a name? Did you characterize
1: Well, I advanced. I was named Claire. So I was Nurse Claire. But as my family likes to tease me, I never advanced to having a last name. (laughs) And I did that for five years. I worked two to three days a week sometimes. So I worked as much as any player. And I got so lazy, too, when I first started working. You know, you did hair and makeup, and I was the beautiful, back then, the beautiful, sexy nurse. That's what I was hired to be. And about two years later, the producer called me in her office because I was wearing scrubs. I wasn't wearing makeup, and my hair was in a ponytail. And she said, you know you don't really work at a hospital, right? There are 7 million people tuning in and you should probably do your hair and makeup.
0: That's a great day job.
1: It was a fantastic day job. What was great about it was I learned pretty early on that I was not going to cut it as an actress because the business of acting made zero sense to me. I really was not a great auditioner. I thought the business is, I still think it's, kind of strange and cruel to actors and so it allowed me to be part of something I loved it allowed me to do other things like train in martial arts and do plays off off off-Broadway meaningful plays where you made no money and very few people saw them but you still felt like you were doing something and so I think it helped me in many ways but it also probably prolonged me making any other life decision for a long time.
0: What prompted you to think about the director's lab and becoming a director?
1: I knew that I loved theater. I loved this form of storytelling, and I was well-trained. What I would do as an actress was I would show up and I would be inevitably very bored on stage because I had you know, a small part or a supporting role, and so I started looking at when the lights were coming on and why people were wearing the costumes they were wearing. At the time, Zelda Fitch Handler, who ran NYU and who's responsible in large part for the regional theater movement, had started a director's lab at NYU. And so she would invite former actors, we had to have our MFA from the program, back three of us a year for free to study directing. And I went into her office and I was crying because I didn't know what I would do with my life and I was you know, lamenting everything. And she looked at me and said, well, darling, you're a director. And it was it was like being anointed to have this goddess of the American theater just say, you're a director. And by the way, come and train for one year in a program and become a director. It it changed my life because for whatever reason, the business of directing made sense to me.
0: Was that during the latter stages of Another World then?
1: I was done with Another World and had done a stint as a magician's assistant. (laughs) I spent one year in Las Vegas being a magician's assistant to the Pendragons while I figured out what I wanted to do with my life. And I think how lucky am I that I'm from Las Vegas and could have a strange, amazing job like that (laughs) let me... Think about my life.
0: So they cut you in half.
1: You know what's sad? Because they were a husband and wife team. I never got cut (laughs) in half. I handed off the swords in very dramatic ways and had to catch the rings and do things like that.
0: During these days, we talk about the Me Too movement. It sounds to me, given your looks, given where you were, that you had to deal with that in ways that a lot of actresses I've spoken with have not.
1: Well, it's funny. I mean, growing up in Las Vegas, you learn very early to decide what kind of woman you're going to be and how you're going to let men treat you. And also my family. I mean, I have a fiery Italian father and I have a mother, had a mother with the soul of Atticus Finch and just a sense of justice that was clear and purposeful. So I was never shy in setting a boundary and never shy in saying what I will and will not do. And I think what a lot of people didn't realize, and I didn't realize either actually until it was made clear in other ways that the the other side of the Me Too movement was if you were a woman who very clearly said, We're not gonna have any of that, doors closed also. So it was a very interesting thing to learn. But I'm okay with those doors that closed.
0: Because <laughs> it took you to the, in this new direction. Yeah. Now we move on to Rajiv Joseph because yeah. The very first play you directed, at least from what I found online, was Rajiv Joseph's very first play. Uh, Did you run into him? Did you meet him? How did that happen? Because you've worked on many of his plays at this point before we get to Archduke.
1: Well, I had directed, but nothing I would consider professionally. And then Teresa Rebeck, the renowned playwright, was a mentor for Rajiv at the theater, the Cherry Lane Mentor Project. And she knew my work from uh, another theater that we worked at. And so she paired us up. Teresa Rebeck said, oh, I think you two would make a good pair. It's so funny. I didn't understand how directors got jobs. So when I met the producers and they said, great, come back tomorrow and meet Rajiv, I thought I had the job. So I showed up the next day, met Rajiv. When he asked me what I thought of the play, instead of saying, I think it's great and I would love to work with you and blah, 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 I said, Listen, I'm really confused about what happens here on page four. And, you know, if we go to the ending and I just started working, you know, Rajiv and I had a great conversation, but 30 minutes later, the producer said, Well, thank you so much. And we have other people to meet and we'll let you know if you have the job. And I wanted to turn around and go, Wait, wait, (laughs) I would do this differently. But I think, to me, that speaks to Rajiv's character, that he is all about the work. He loved that. He didn't need me to compliment him. He didn't need me to do anything but say, what's the story we're telling?
0: So what what happened? You left and then got the call say, come back?
1: I got the call saying they had hired me, which I couldn't believe. And then we did that show, which was so successful that it was moved up into the bigger theater. And then from there, we were hired... To work at Second Stage. So again, we moved to another level of off Broadway theater and we've been working ever since. So it's over a decade of work.
0: All right. Is it pronounced dramaturg or dramaturge? Because I've heard both.
1: I've heard both as well. Um, and I, I probably say dramaturg.
0: So you're not listed as a dramaturg anywhere, but in essence, as the first time director and particularly as a director of new works, your job is dramaturg, right? Yes.
1: In part it is. There are dramaturgs who look at plays uh, from a completely intellectual perspective, and I truly cannot do what they do. Not that I'm not intellectual, but I come from a family of storytellers. So I'm better at 3D story-making. The minute I hear the play, the minute I meet the actors, Rajiv and I can talk about, well, what's the story you want to tell? Is this moment helping you tell that story? Is this moment in the way of the story? And when I understand that, I um, create a world that supports that and a world that reveals that the themes can come alive in that way. So I am a dramaturg, and clearly when I'm reading the play, I ask my questions. I ask, what's our job? What are we going to do here together?
0: Does that include working on dialogue to get the actors' voices or the character voices right as well?
1: I don't do any of the playwriting. That's all Rajiv. But I will sometimes, um, from an acting perspective, I'll say, this character has been talking about this all this time, and now they suddenly switch. Wouldn't Doesn't it feel like their concern would be, I will talk? But I never playwright. Not with him. He doesn't need it. <laughs> He's pretty good, that guy.
0: Giovanna Sardelli. Rajiv Joseph's best-known play is Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. And while you didn't actually direct it at the end, you worked with him at the beginning, is that correct? Oh,
1: yeah. We worked on that play for um, two years together. We did a college workshop of it that was really fascinating, and then we did um, a workshop in New York. It's funny, it's one of his plays that I have not directed professionally and want to because I have loved it since he began it. And it was an interesting moment in our career paths because we had been coming up together. And then he had this amazing opportunity at the Taper and you know, while I felt all the growing pains of my partner moving on, right. I also celebrated that for him. And it's funny because many people said to me, why didn't you fight or why didn't you do this or that? And I think because our relationship was always bigger than one play and one moment, and that's why we still work together now.
0: Did you do work on Guards at the Taj, which was at Marin Theater a couple of years ago?
1: I did not do that production, but I did the very first regional production. So that's a play he wrote. I had nothing to do with the writing, the development. I just received a gift of a beautiful finished Rajiv Joseph play so it had its world premiere and then the opportunity to do it at the Geffen Playhouse in LA happened and so he hired me for that and it was a great moment because I was able to say to him listen you had this great successful show off Broadway and now we have another chance so what do you want to do differently if I can bring something to the show what is it? And he said he wanted to really um, stretch the bounds of the comedy, wanted to see how far we could go. And in a play where people spend a good portion of it swimming in blood, that was a challenge. (laughs) That's a funny play. It was so fun. And it was funny. And um, it was incredibly successful. It, It won the Ovation Award that year for Best Production and it was so much fun to get to do that with a play that wasn't shifting. You know, often when we're working together, the play is moving and we're all playing catch up to his incredible brain. And this one was set and he wasn't there so I could do what I wanted in some ways. So that was that was fantastic.
0: So when you say the play is moving, it means that this is an early production and you're working on it and he's working on it and then he shows up or... You've worked with other people as well, and said, "No, let's do this instead." Oh, Would,
1: completely. Yeah. That's
0: like a Kushner thing.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, Rajiv is one of the hardier rewriters. He's even Archduke. It's uh, it's obviously our second time doing it, and he rewrote. He cut out a character, changed two scenes. So he rewrote, and then our third day in rehearsal, he added a complete new moment. Here at Theater Works. Here at Theater Works.
0: So this is not the same play completely that was on earlier.
1: No, the spine of it is the same. The story is the same. I think he he just learned so much from seeing it at the taper that he he got to the heart of it in a different way. So, yeah, it's, it's very different. So I'm actually learning about this play again. So let's get into
0: this play a little bit. It's about these people who are hired... To kill Archduke Ferdinand, which sets <laughs> off World War I, or something like that.
1: Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, so what he's doing, it's not a historical drama, and I want to say that right up front. So you're not going to come into the theater and see a history lesson. Rajiv does, doesn't do that. So the backdrop of the play is he's looking at three of the young men who were recruited by the Black Hand, basically— to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand. The play deals with everything prior to World War I because, of course, these young men had no idea that that's the spark that would ignite this terrible war. What he's doing with the play, which I find utterly fascinating and also frightening in how the world has changed in the few years we've been working on this play, is really looking at a nationalist impulse and looking at what happens when people of, of need, whether that need is purpose, belonging, basic things like food, health, family, can be attracted to a cause and a charismatic leader of a cause, and how you can pervert and distort the purest of hearts and the purest of people and bend them to your own will if you have a strong, charismatic leader who's not afraid to lie.
0: Is this play similar to the other ones in that there's a combination of blood and guts and comedy?
1: There's not as much blood. There's hardly any blood, actually, in this play. There's a course of darkness to the play, given the subject matter, but there is a comedy to it because part of what we're looking at, I mean, one of the things where Jeeve learned when he was writing the play, and then we traveled to Sarajevo together to learn a little bit more about the assassination was it never should have succeeded. It was like a farce. Every single thing that could have gone wrong went wrong in this assassination attempt, including, like, you know, somebody throwing a bomb at at the Archduke's car and it bounces off and blows up something else. It never should have succeeded, and yet it did.
0: From what I'm learning about history, the farce of history, whether it be something like Trump getting to be president, the farce, You can't top it no matter what you do. And, of course, now we're living in completely farcical times.
1: So in October of 2016, Rajiv had an opportunity to go to Moscow and work on a play, and I went with with him so that we could then go from Moscow to Belgrade to Sarajevo and learn about um, the world in which these young men grew up and how they lived and speak to people. And while we were in Moscow... The Hollywood Access tape broke. Now, nobody, none of the um, Russians we were with were speaking politics, but all the Americans we were traveling with, the feeling in that moment was that clown is never going to be president now. I think Lin-Manuel sang ain't never going to be president now on Saturday Night Live, and there was a confidence in what the future of America might look like. We went to Sarajevo and we took a tour Um, we, we show up in Sarajevo and it's raining and we walk, of course, to the corner where the assassination, um, took place and we look across the street and advertised as something called the assassination tour. And so we said, well, we must sign up. (laughs) And, um, the next day we show up and it's only the two of us and a young gentleman by the name of Riyadh. And he spent five hours with us walking us through Sarajevo, talking about the assassination, talking about more than that. But at one point after he had detailed how the operation was supposed to handle, he turned to us and he said, I mean, it's like a farce, this thing. And I'll never forget, Rajiv and I had two conflicting emotions at the same time. One was we suddenly felt very confident in the fact that we were looking at This moment in history through the lens of dark comedy. And then we also thought, oh my God, underestimating people who are deemed ridiculous can have serious consequences.
0: Hitler was deemed ridiculous too. So let's go back to then, at that point, where was Archduke in the development stage?
1: He had been commissioned by Center Theater Group, so the Mark Taper Forum. So we knew we had this amazing world premiere. But the play he wrote for them initially was very dark and lyrical and beautiful and haunting. That's what they initially signed on for.
0: And it was about the same subject.
1: You know, kind of. It's very funny. It, it actually wasn't. But one of the characters was this young man who he was fas- fashioning after Gavrila Princip. So he wrote this whole play. It was gorgeous. Got him a commission and got him a production. And then he did what he always does, which he says, now I'm going to do another draft and turn it on its head. And that's where he thought, actually the most interesting person in my play is this young man. And I'm going to turn it into a crazy farce. So then he did a workshop here. So he was part of Theater Works New Works Festival, where he undid his play, made it an uproarious comedy. And The audience, um, they responded really well. They laughed, but they questioned the why of it and what's deeper about it. And so that's part of the reason he did the trip was to dig into that question. So by the time we did the production at the Taper, it had settled. And so it's, you know, it's not a farce in it by any stretch of the imagination. And it is now thoroughly political satire, dark comedy.
0: The Guards... (laughs) <laughs> turned into farce,
1: right? Well, this has moments of that too, because again, I think something he does so well is the foibles of humanity, and and farce just comes from this a deep desire to achieve something that is simply beyond your means and capabilities. And I think uh, we're certainly watching young men deal with that in this play.
0: Giovanna Sardelli, getting back to your role as director on something mm-hmm. like this. I mean, I would assume it's a little bit easier in the fact that the play is set, but then it's not set. (laughs) As a director, how does your role change when he does that? Does it change?
1: I mean, essentially, it's the same job in that, again, what I'm hired to do and what I love to do is tell a story. What is the best way to tell the story? And so everything changes. So when he writes something, I usually understand why, because it made the story better. I understand the need for the change. So my job just becomes folding that in and making sure every single player on the team understands the change, why the change, and that we move forward from there. So that's really what I do. And it's fun for me when it changes. I like that. It's very alive.
0: Also on most of your work since you are working on the very beginnings of plays yeah. that's more or less what you're doing anyway is you're kind of rolling with the punches on a daily basis.
1: Yeah yeah it's funny I, I never thought I never thought of that because it's what I love to do. And my training as an actress at NYU, one of the cornerstones of our training was a games class was the idea of play the idea of say yes. Find out what happens. Explore, and so that never left me. Even though you know that's how I started as an actress, I want the room to be alive. I want there to be room for discovery. And if you if you make a discovery, I want that to have an impact on the play and the product.
0: How do you deal with violence on stage?
1: How do you mean in terms of communicating how well, we're going to achieve it, or
0: well, I mean not merely how you're going to achieve it, but how. It has to form some kind of element for the audience yeah. where the audience is taken aback on some level by yeah. the violence, yet at the same time, not too taken aback.
1: Right. Well, that's always the balance. Again, I look at why the violence? How is the violence happening? Um, I love Tarantino. I am a fan of aggressive storytelling One of the first jobs uh, I had as a director was Matthew Lopez's Whipping Man. And if you know that play, there's an amputation of a leg in the first scene. And it is also hilarious and dark. And when I was hired, um, the theater company said to me, listen, our audience can't handle a lot of blood. And I said, okay. And I still managed to scare the crap out of the audience because that was my job. And I did it with no blood because in that moment you wanted everyone in that audience to feel the fear, the character felt that was essential. And so that was an amazing moment for me to learn how to do that and to learn that maybe growing up with a gun collecting passionate Italian father (laughs) and studying martial arts for 12 years that I actually very much enjoy the energy of power and manipulation and violence, whether it's funny or not.
0: I would think growing up in Vegas and going to shows and being behind the scenes, particularly, curiously, in that role as the magician's (laughs) assistant behind the scenes, I mean, theater is about artifice. Yes. I mean, when I've gone on stage sometimes on a set that looks unbelievably realistic, once you get there, it's not. And that's the same with actors.
1: <laughs> yeah. That is the part I love. I love that we, every single person who walks into a theater agrees for, at this uh, suspension of disbelief that we are going to pretend. That is what we have done as children. We are going to invest in a story and allow ourselves to be transported, which is why the fact that knowing the blood is not real. The violence is not real. It's only funny if you didn't see the funny coming or if you understand every step of the funny. That agreement with an audience is sacred to me. And I we take it, Rajiv and I take it incredibly seriously about which, what are we asking of an audience in each moment? And what are we giving an audience in each moment?
0: I would think that comedy is harder than drama.
1: Yes, it is. It is so funny. We rehearsed an entire scene, so we had an hour and a half of rehearsal, and we did, in 15 minutes, we were able to um, touch the depth of despair these young men are feeling in one moment of the play, and then we spent 35 minutes on a moment of comedy that is going to last three seconds. And because when it was wrong, it wasn't funny, it wasn't anything. We all said... It takes a skill. It's why I love working with clowns. It's why I love working with people who are well-trained. If you can be a good clown, you can be a good actor.
0: Well, look at the people from Pickle Family Circus. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing is that you really don't know until that first preview.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you use an audience to teach you, are you telling the story you want to tell? And the thing about Rajiv that is different from other playwrights is there are some playwrights you work with where you know you need to get laughs, you know where those laughs fall. And with Rajiv, he, especially with this play, he's okay if no one ever laughs. There are moments, of course, where we hope people laugh, where we hope we provide a relief so they can laugh, but because his humor, again, is tinged with a dark truth, and he's not pushing it into a world like Guards of the Taj, where it's very overt, it can be dazzling, it can be charming, it can be many other things, while also dancing on the edge of comedy.
0: Do you sometimes get, and this is more a general question, if you go back to a later performance, do you sometimes get jokes that completely miss one night and then another night everybody's laughing hysterically?
1: Very much. And actors always get better at finding the laughs. I won't get a laugh if we're going to have to get it in a cheap way. So there are times where we know we could get a laugh. We can instruct an audience. But I would rather fail nobly than achieve something, you know, put the equivalent of your hand under your armpit. Although, as I say that, there are a few moments in this play (laughs) that do touch that. What's
0: a cheap laugh?
1: To me, a cheap laugh is one that wasn't really earned. So, I mean, there are different styles. There are ridiculous styles where you're laughing just because of the way people are slamming and coming in and out of doors. I don't think those are cheap because that is incredible skill. A cheap laugh is one you didn't earn, but if somebody is so skilled, they can um, either really serve it up to the audience. It's hard to describe without somebody being able to see you, but I was watching something on Broadway a little while ago. And I could tell that something that was supposed to be funny wasn't quite working. And at a certain point, uh, one of the actors kind of turned directly out front and made a gesture and like sent it up so that everyone, they got the laughs. But I thought, oh, actually, you were supposed to get them two lines ago. So it's still a skill, and I still respected it. But I thought, oh, Interesting.
0: That, that's what you mean by a cheap...
1: A cheap laugh is you didn't really get it, but somebody's skilled enough to, like, wink at the audience and drag it out of them. In, in this style. Again, there are certain styles where that is all you're doing is winking at the audience, and those, to me that's not cheap. That's honoring the style.
0: But even so, I mean, from what I've seen, the best comedy is when people play it straight anyway. Yeah. When they don't mug.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Changing the subject... Rajiv Joseph is starting to work on a musical, I understand. Uh, have you done work on musicals?
1: I have, actually. When I began, I did a ton of work on musicals, and often I work at the Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program at NYU, helping to develop new musicals. But as a director, I have not. It's very. I would love to. Uh, it's, I'm just usually so booked. And musicals take forever to develop. So I have a few. I have one uh, that I'm working on actually here at TheaterWorks that we've commissioned um, with the Kilbanes and the writer Lynn Rosen. They're creating a musical that I will direct here and probably in a, I think it'll take about two years to develop that. We're, we're commissioning them and supporting that play. It came out of um, our writer's retreat. And so the next step will be that audiences get to see it in our New Works Festival and then hopefully on our main stage and then hopefully everywhere else.
0: So what happens, let me get this right. So a playwright comes along and they have a play. They don't have an idea for a play. They have a play. Right. And that's where you come in. You don't start before
1: then. Here's what's interesting. Our writer's retreat at TheaterWorks is programming where we'll just take an idea so Min Khan, who did The Four Immigrants, in American musical manga, showed up to us and said, hey, here's a comic book. I'd like to make a musical. Can I? And uh, Leslie Martinson, uh, who was the director of that musical, had the good sense to say, sure. So we got on board from from idea to world premiere. So at times we will. And it, I do. I mean, um, Lynn Rosen, the playwright of the Untitled Musical, brought me just an idea. I looked at her idea and I said, the Kilbane's are a good partner for you. So we formed that partnership and then we've been working on it ever since. But again, I'm not writing. I'm I'm a sounding board for great ideas and moments and then playing on our feet.
0: So you're not going to be a writer. What about directing film?
1: Oh, I would love that. I got very, very lucky. And after we did Archduke at the Taper, one of the heads of development at MGM saw the show and happened to be a theater director himself. And so he was able to see what I had done in the show and invited me to um, trail a director on Handmaid's Tale. So last winter, I spent two months in Toronto on the set of Handmaid's Tale, essentially getting a mini degree in learning about filmmaking. And I can't wait to do it. I have been so booked with theater, but all I want to go do right now is make a film.
0: Giovanna Sardelli, what have you got coming up after Archduke?
1: After Archduke, I head off to Dorset Theater Festival in Dorset, Vermont, and I'm going to work on a world premiere called Mrs. Christie by Heidi Armbrister. And then I'm back here in August for TheaterWorks New Works Festival, where we are presenting Three brand-new plays by three female playwrights and two brand-new musicals. The festival is one of my favorite things we do here, and it's all new work all the time. So I hope people will check out our website and come to that.
0: So I guess there's no chance that you'll be the next artistic director here because you got other things.
1: (laughs) You know what? I would love it. What a blessing whoever the next artistic (laughs) director is that they get to come into a theater that is— A stable, happy, wonderful place to work.
0: Archduke by Rajiv Joseph is playing at TheatreWorks Mountain View Center for the Arts through June 30th. For more information, you can go to TheatreWorks.org.